0: From Galatians 2, we're going to be reading verses 15 to 21. Paul writes, But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Jesus Christ. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is God's word. You can grab a seed. Well, we've been in, in the letter to the Galatians and uh, looking at it over the past several weeks. And uh, we have to, this passage comes at the, at the second half of uh, a section where Paul is telling a story. So we've got to go back a little bit to understand what's going on in this passage, what's happened. So we, we saw last week that Peter, one of the key disciples, maybe the key disciple in the church at the time, had been eating. Uh, so he's a Jewish man and, and growing up. His whole life, he'd been told, you can't eat with people. You can't fellowship with people who are not Jewish. They're unclean. But as grace enters into his life, as Jesus comes into his life, it changes things. And so now he's able to go eat with non-Jewish people. And so when he goes and plants this church in a place called Antioch or joins the church in Antioch, it's a beautiful picture of what grace does that Peter is willing to now go and eat in Gentile people's house to break bread with them, to sit down with them and fellowship together. But what happens is these Jewish Christians show up and all of a sudden Peter stops eating with these Gentile believers. He goes and only starts eating with Jewish folks. And last week we looked at the reason why. What stops Peter from eating with the Gentile believers? And what Paul says is the word that he uses here is fear. That's the reason. It's fear that's actually driving Peter away from being part of a church in a beautiful way. And this teaches us something that's very true. I think that's generally true for for most of us. we we like to think of ourselves as very rational people. But in reality, many of the decisions we make, especially some of the moral decisions we make, are actually more emotionally driven than we like to give them credit to. And that's why it's so important for us to be aware of the fears, the things that drive us. And uh, my wife, Sarah, came up last week and talked a little bit about her journey in understanding her fear. And we talked about that in terms of the Enneagram. It's a really great tool for us to understand some of the fears that drive us. And we might think there are actually rational reasons why we're going in a certain direction or believing something, but it can be based a lot on fear. And behind even, i want to take one more step today in talking about it. So we, we make decisions, moral decisions. They're often driven by fear, but actually we take one more step behind that. The things that make us super excited, the things that make us super afraid, the things that we put our hope in and our dreams are made of, the Bible says those things are where our value and our identity are. That's why we become super afraid. So for example, for me, if I come up here, every, every week I come up and, I, and I'm still a little bit nervous when I get up to preach. But if I was super afraid, if I was very, very afraid, or if things went poorly and I was just down in the dumps, or if things went really well, which, let's just be honest, they go every week, it's a 10 out of 10 up here, and, and I just felt like so great about everything all the time, then that would mean that there's something that's happening up here that I'm doing up here that actually my identity is based in. It's not just something that I do, but my identity is here. If it's a place of deep, deep fear, deep sadness, or deep and great joy. And this is true for Peter as well. His fear signals where his identity is. Because before those Jewish Christians show up, he's totally fine to eat with the Gentile believers. But when they show up, then he, it shows his true identity and his motives are found in those folks and what they think of him. He places an immense amount of value in being accepted by them, and he doesn't want to be excluded And so he breaks fellowship with the rest of the church. Now, the word that the Bible uses for these things, these things that take our identity, and and they're not Jesus, the word the Bible uses is the word idols. Idols. And idols are good things that can move to the center of our lives. They take that place that's reserved for Jesus, and we focus in and around them. And they cause us deep fear, or they, they, they are places where we put our identity, our hopes in them. That if we have our idols, we will be, for example, happy. Or we won't be afraid. They promise us those types of things. Now, the Bible is really, really negative about idols. And there's loads of reasons why, but let me just give you three quick ones. The first reason the Bible is negative about idols is because they lie to us. They lie to us. So idols tell us they will give us something, but then they can never deliver on that. So maybe they'll say, you know, if you're super afraid or you feel not valuable, if you have me, you'll feel valuable or unafraid. Now, that's a huge statement to make, that idols lie to us. So let me give you two quick examples. The second one is going to be from the Bible, but the first one is from the prophetess Alanis Morissette. If you don't know who Alanis is, first of all, what have you been doing with your life? Um, but she she's a, um, a, was a Cana- is a Canadian pop star, but she was super popular when I was like in middle school in the 90s. And uh, she was probably the most famous pop star in the world at that time. But she did an interview a few years ago, and here's what she said. Fame, at this point, I just say it's a planetary value. Wealth, fame, power at the cost of everything else. So I think that value being shared around the planet creates in people this thought that if I'm, hap- or if I'm famous, I will be happy. If I'm famous, I'll be happy. There's the promise of the idol. If you're famous, you'll be happy. And she got super famous. Here's what she says. And what I've come to see is that fame only amplified that which was already there. So if I was depressed or if I was insecure, or if I was already unhappy, or whatever, it just amplified it. It just made it bigger. And it didn't give me what it had been purported to give. See, it lied to her. It couldn't deliver on the promise. And this is not someone who's just been marginally famous. This is someone who's famous around the world, maybe one of the most famous people at the time. But that idol of, of fame couldn't deliver happiness for her. And then she says, she closes by saying, so there's this great disillusionment. I felt completely disillusioned. Idols lie to us. Psalm 20 says the same thing but it just says it with ancient language it says some take pride in chariots others in horses but we take pride in the name of our Lord of the Lord our God they collapse and fall but we rise and stand firm idols will always collapse and fall maybe it's not chariots or horses or fame for you but there's something that we all put in the middle And it will lie to us. If it's not Jesus, it will offer something, but it can never truly deliver. So that's the first thing. Sorry? Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? (laughs) Yes. Well played, Meg. Um, Okay, second thing. So that's the first thing, is idols lie to us. The second is that idols hurt other people. So Alanis says wealth, fame, power at the cost of everything else. It comes at the cost of everything else. And in her interview, she talks about all the things that it cost her. It cost her, she felt like she was not authentic as an artist. It also took a physical, emotional, and mental toll on her. Um, And it took a lot of time for her to try to become famous and stay famous. But the other things that it did was it also broke relationships that she had. Important relationships with people that she left behind. And she became disassociated with her community and kind of left alone. And, and she just talks, too, about how cutthroat the music industry is and how she felt like she was treating people super inhumanely. And this is, this is something that we need to focus on and will become the focus of, of this sermon because it's also the focus of this passage because that's what's happening with Peter. His idolatry, his over-concern with his people and their community breaks the church. That's what they're saying. Just imagine yourself. It's really hard for us to, uh, to understand this situation because, of course, it's 2,000 years ago and these are things that we don't really deal with. But just imagine, Peter goes. He's probably the most famous apostle in the entire world. And he comes to this place in Antioch and they just meet in little houses, in house churches. They just gather together around tables. Peter comes and just sits with you at your table. Just imagine that, the most famous guy. And he's like, yeah, I, I'm by sitting here and breaking bread with you, I'm showing you that I'm exactly in the same place as you. Imagine how you would feel. you feel so lifted up. This guy who walked with Jesus, who Jesus said, oh, I'm going to build my church on your life. And, and he sits with you. And then all of a sudden, he pulls away. It breaks the church. Idols hurt not only ourselves, but they hurt. We hurt each other. or they hurt others, sorry. And the final thing that idols do is they take the place that's reserved for only Jesus in our life. And this is the key thing. And what Paul has been saying throughout Galatians and will continue to say is that what we need to do is put Jesus at the center of everything else. And when we put idols there, they're in a place that they, they can't be. They can't deliver. It's not that idols are bad things necessarily. It's just that they're in the wrong place. And Paul will continually say over and over again, that's a place that only Jesus can be. And it's not because Jesus is a megalomaniac that he has to be at the center of everything. It's because he's the only thing that if you put him at the center of your life, won't crush. it won't crush him. It won't crush you, and it could actually allow us to be generous, beautiful people, reflections of of God. So Paul has said that many times in many different ways, that Jesus needs to be in the middle. He needs to be glorified. He needs to be worshipped. He needs to be weighty, the weighty center and anchor of not only each of our lives, but of our community as well. And because idolatry is a a problem, Paul uses really strong language to address Peter in this passage. He says, I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. Paul says your, your choice to not eat with, with Gentile believers is not just a small social detail. It's not just some sideline thing. It's actually something that's breaking this community. It's ruining the community, and it's taking Jesus out of the center for you, Paul. Now, three quick things about the gospel that we notice here. The first is that gospel, then, is not just a doctrine. The gospel is good news, and is doctrine. It is the story of Jesus and what he's done for us, but it's also a path for life. Paul uses this word, you're walking out of step with the gospel. One commentator says, Paul is saying to Peter, you're not headed towards the center anymore. And this is why we're trying to talk about Jesus being the center, having this focus, that Jesus is at the center and we all turn our lives towards him. That's the most important thing. Because a bounded set way of thinking about the gospel just asks the question of how do I get in? How do, the gospel is the way for me to just get over the boundary. I believe it and therefore I'm in. But that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing here that the gospel is for all of life. As Tim Keller has famously said, the gospel is not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not just doctrine, it's a path for life. The second is that the gospel is not just doctrine, it's a lived reality. That's what Paul is saying. We, we've said it over and over again in this series, but I just want to keep saying it, is that grace and the good news of the gospel and the person of Jesus is always an embodied reality. Not just something that we think in our heads, but actually takes place in our lives. And Peter is, Paul is saying to Peter, your life is not reflecting the gospel. It's always a lived reality. And then third, the gospel is not just doctrine, but it, touches, it needs to touch the deepest parts of who we are as people. You know, Peter already believes in the gospel. He was with Jesus. You can go read the gospels about his personal story. But Paul is showing him at this moment that the gospel hasn't taken, fully root, or fu- taken full root at, at the level of identity for Peter. There's somewhere deeper that the gospel has to go. It's not just something that we just believe to get over a line. It needs to sink to the level of our deep fears, of our identity, of our idols, of our hopes and fears. And it hasn't done that for Peter. How about for you? How about for me? How about for us? Has it sunk to that level in our lives? So with the rest of the time that we have together, I want to show uh, how Paul brings the gospel to bear on Peter's life. How does he recenter Peter on the person of Jesus? So let's look at four things. The first two will be really quick. The first is that Paul confronts Peter with the good news of the gospel. So he says this, When I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone. Cephas is another name for Peter. So I want to just point out here that Paul's not a fuzzy person. He's not just like, well, Peter's just doing Peter just doing that thing. It's not a big deal. No, he comes and he confronts him. Now, some of us might be a little put off by how he does that. You're like, wow, he just comes and confronts him in front of everybody else. Like, that's, that's not very kind. We have to remember back to last week what happened. Peter, again, he might be the most famous apostle in the entire church at that time. And when Peter goes and only eats with Jewish people, he stops eating with Gentile believers. It said a whole bunch of people followed him. So this is a public situation, and so Paul is addressing him publicly, because Peter is not the only one affected. And like, like I've said, we said already, that the, when we have idolatry in our lives, it hurts other people. It's never just an individualistic choice. It always affects us as a community. So Paul confronts Peter. The second thing is that he clearly names the hypocrisy that's going on in Peter's life. He says, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? It's so a lot of Gentile to Jew translation there for you in one sentence, Lavon. But uh, I hope you could do it. Um, so he's pointing out in Jesus' life, the, or sorry, in, in Peter's life, the hypocrisy that's going on, and he just points it out very clearly that you're living as a hypocrite. Then he continue, he, or sorry, Paul speaks to Peter from within his own culture. So here's where we need to take a bit of time to understand what's going on. So first he says, "We." That's the first word that he uses. He's talking, so this is Paul talking to Peter, and he says, we. Like, we're on the same page here. We're coming from the same place. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's saying, we come from a similar heritage together. And we have to remember back to how Jewish people saw Gentiles, that they were outsiders, that they were sinners, that they were outside the people of God. Now, Paul doesn't believe this anymore, but he's meeting Peter where Peter is at. He's meeting him in his culture. And this is something that Paul does all the time. He's, he's uh, par excellence at this missional practice where we, he has this, this truth, this message that he wants to bring to Peter. And then Peter has his own worldview, his own perspective. It's coming from a very Jewish perspective. And what Paul is trying to do is try to meet those two things together. He's trying to engage those gears together so that when he shares the good news of the gospel, it's going to, to move something in Peter's life. And for those of us who are disciple makers, which is all of us, we just talked about that as parents, for those of us who are um, trying to, you know, share the gospel with our friends and our family members and our coworkers, this is such an important principle for us to understand. Sometimes we're trying to share the good news of the gospel, but our wheels aren't engaged with each other. We're not taking on the language and the worldview of people in our world, the people that we're trying to talk to. And so there's no traction. There's no movement in their gear. And what Paul is doing here is he's meeting Peter where he's at. He doesn't believe it anymore, but he's getting these two things together, the good news of the gospel and Peter's worldview or his perspective. So he says, we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So we're starting to see some insider language here, so we're going to have to do a little bit of work. So I'm going to try to keep this quick. Don't fall asleep on me, okay? This word justified here is a, is a Bible word. We just sang it a bunch of times. It is a bunch of times in this passage. And it's a similar word in the Greek to the word righteousness that we see also in this passage. Now, our understanding of this term largely comes from a Western legal framework. That's how we understand this idea of justification. So it goes something like this. God is like a judge, okay? And I am like a person that's uh, on trial. And I'm found to be wanting. I'm guilty. I don't have enough righteousness, I haven't perfectly obeyed the law, and so I'm a sinner. But what happens is that Jesus swoops in, and he takes my place. He takes the penalty that I deserve, and therefore I'm not guilty. I'm, I, I receive his righteousness, we trade, He I get his righteousness, and he gets my penalty, and therefore I am justified, which in Sunday school we might teach us, it's just as if I'd never sinned, Okay. So, this is one way that the Bible does talk about justification. I'm not saying that this is wrong. And it meets a certain gear for us, it it communicates to us in a certain way that really helps in a Western mindset. Because we're very individualistic, and this is an individualistic way of thinking about it. And we understand the legal concepts of guilt and innocence. In our legal system, we say, you're not guilty or you're innocent until proven guilty, right? We all know this saying. It's also transactional in the sense that it commodifies justice or justification and righteousness. These are either things that you have or you don't have. They're a binary. And again, it's easy for us to understand. But I want to point out that Paul here is talking to Peter as a Jew. That's the whole context of what he's just said. And their culture was communal, not individualistic. Honor and shame, not guilt and innocence. And it was much more relational and much less transactional. So we have to look at it through that lens, and it slightly changes how we understand this passage to be playing out. So that's the theory. It's done. Let me try to give you an example uh, that might help us bring this home to understand what's going on in this passage. So I grew up in a really small town in northern Alberta. It's 2,300 people, really small. And there's a lot of hunting in this town. And also, even though my family like, lived in the town, we didn't live on a farm somewhere, we would often partner with other families in the community, and we would go and like kill a cow together. So we would go half in on a cow or a pig or chickens or these types of things. And so uh, there's lots of butchers in our town. So we would go and we'd kill this animal, and then you have to like take out all the innards, you have to skin it, and then you take it to the butcher, and then they cut the animal for you and they put it into like the butcher paper and they write on it like T-bone steak, you know, November, 1993 or whatever. And then my mom puts that immediately in the freezer. Um, and that's the way that it works. So we, we kill, they cut. That's what a butcher does. Now, um, I, one, there's two different ways of, of paying for this. Like in my, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. So it, I'm not, I wasn't really sure as I was thinking about this. I think credit cards were around at that time, but nobody really used them in my town at least. And so there's two ways of paying for things. One way was cash, and the other is check. So cash is a really simple form of payment. We go to the butcher. The butcher says, it's $300 for you to get your meat back. I either have enough money, or I don't. I either have enough cash, or I don't have enough cash to pay him. Now, in, this is our way of thinking of what Paul is talking about. I come to pay for my meat, and I just don't have enough money. But Jesus swoops in, and he pays the bill, so I can get the meat. This, the last two weeks have actually been very anti-vegetarian, I've realized. I, I don't know why, what, what's going on with that. Um, but Jesus comes in, he pays the bill, we get the meat. And it's very individualistic, it's a transaction that's happening, okay? But sometimes people would pay with a check, and a check is slightly different. It's the same amount. So you, you owe me $300 to get your meat. But what the butcher is doing is he's offering trust to me. He's saying, I'm saying I have $300 in the bank, And so I'm writing this check to you, and therefore take this check. And the butcher then would take the check that I've written for $300, and he would go to the bank. But what happens if I don't have $300 in my bank? The bank will reject the check, and they'll stamp it with three letters that may cause a little bit of PTSD to some people in our community. N-S-F. Non-sufficient funds. If you remember back to university, standing in front of the ATM with your ATM card, and you're just like praying, you're like $40, $40. And it's like NSF, you're just like, ah, $20, $20, you know? I don't know if that was you. Um, but that's what happens. And so if, if, the, if it's the same problem, do you understand? I don't have enough money to pay. But it's a very different outcome. Because what I've done is I've actually broken trust with this butcher. I've broken some of what the social fabric is and the social contracts that we have in our society, the things that make our society and community work. So the butcher in my hometown, what he did is he actually bought this massive billboard and he put it out on the highway and he wrote everyone's name who had an NSF check. He put their name on there. And at the top of, at the, top of the billboard, this is what it said. I've driven by this billboard hundreds of times in my life. i seared into my mind, shame on you for stealing from me. And then it would just list everybody's name underneath that. And you'd be driving back and you'd be like, yo, I think that's, that's Bobby's dad. What? Um, see, the point is to say this. The person didn't have enough money. It's, but this is not about guilt. What the butcher is doing is he's referencing something very, very different. He's talking, the sign emphasizes that the people on that board have broken trust with the butcher which will cause the butcher then to break trust with more people. He's going to become less and less trusting. You won't be able to use checks anymore. And, and so it affects more than just the butcher. It's not just being guilty, it affects the entire community. And he was out there, he was obviously just publicly shaming people, which we now know is not a good practice, but, you know, it's a backwoods little town. And, um, but the whole point there, too, is he's warning people. He's telling people, these people are breaking the social fabric of our society. There are people who should be outside of our community. And they don't don't live by the same code that we have. So shame on them. Shame on them. And that's more what Paul is talking about with Peter and his view of justification and righteousness. Because it's a communal society. He's saying, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. The people don't make it into the community of God, or they don't make the community of God work by doing works of the law, by keeping Torah, or that we don't relieve our shame in the community of God by becoming circumcised. Or in the family of God, we don't receive honor by eating kosher. These are all things that he's talked about. We can't earn enough money by doing those things to be included in the people of God. Paul will say later, nobody is justified by keeping the law. That's not how we're able to be in good standing within the community. That's not how we're able to get our names off that board. Instead, he says, we're included and honored and esteemed in the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, again, we have to do a little bit of word, work on this word f- faith because wh- I think when we think of faith, what we think of generally is something that we do in our minds. It's a cognitive thing. So I believe, I cognitively, cognitively agree, or I don't. But recently, Oxford professor Teresa Morgan, who teaches Greco-Roman history, has written a book. And here's what she says about faith in the context of Paul's letters. She says, faith is not a body of beliefs or a function of the heart or the mind in that context. That's not how they thought about it. Rather, faith is a relationship which creates communities, sustains communities, and are embedded in social practices and institutions. Faith holds all the partners together in a shared enterprise. Again, it's a much more communal thing. We individualize it, which is okay. We're trying to make our gears move. But in this context, that's what they're talking about. Faith, exercise is a communal thing. So we might want to say we're in God's family by allegiance, might be a better word, or relational commitment, or a fundamental reorientation of our relationships to Jesus. That what God has done in Jesus is he's radically reoriented who's in and who's out, who's honored and who has worth and who doesn't. And it's not by keeping Torah, but it's by putting Jesus at the center. That's what Paul is trying to say to Peter. And, he, and I think some of us might hear this, and even though maybe some of it is new, maybe the more communal identification is new, you might say, oh, yeah, like, this is Christianity 101. Like, I get it. You're not justified. You're not included in the family of God by works of the law, by doing good things. I know that. It's by Jesus. That's why I put my faith in Jesus. But here's the thing that we need to hit home for us, or it needs to hit home for us, is that Peter would have understood that too. Like Peter wrote books of the Bible. Like he understands, but Paul is trying to tell Peter, look, you've, you've got off the path, though. Something has happened where you're not walking in line. You, he says you're living out of line, or he says later on, you're setting grace aside, or you're rebuilding things that you've torn down, or you're not acting in faith. And here's the big deal. When you, don't, when you act out of line with the gospel, it actually breaks up the church, And your idolatry, he says, is actually causing our church to look less like Jesus and just look more like everybody else in the surrounding culture. It's breaking the fabric of the community so our ability to witness to the good news of the gospel is diminished because we just look like everybody else. So let me try and translate this for today. It's easy to get off grace. It's so easy to get off track. It's so easy to have idols. And we all have them, cultural idols, Religious idols, personal idols, and John Calvin famously said, our hearts are idol factories. But our hearts, our idols don't just hurt us individually. That's often how we talk about them, and that's true. Our, our idols do hurt us. They do lie to us. They do steal from us. And, but they also break up our community. They hurt the church. Just like idolatry doesn't allow us to become fully human into what God has made us to be, idolatry also affects the church that we as a community don't look like the community that god has called us to be and i i love this church i'm super honored to be in leadership here and and every week i hear things that make me so proud to be the pastor but i i also want us to hear the challenge of this passage i want to mirror what paul is trying to do by pushing peter by pushing us And it's super hard because it's a foreign idea to us. Like, nobody in this group is like, our biggest problem isn't like, well, that person doesn't eat with, or only eats with Jews. Like, we're not, like, that's not our problem today. So let me try to rephrase what I think Paul is saying in a way that we might understand, just to encapsulate everything that he's said so far. Do we think that we're the church that God is calling us to be? Do we think we're the church that God is calling us to be? And I'm not talking about this moment right now. Like, is our Sunday gathering just, like, the best? And, like, we could get more fog machines and lasers and whatever. And it could be, you know, you could preach better, John, and all those things. That might all be true. I'm not actually talking about this moment. I'm talking about us. Like, who we are together as a reflection of Jesus. Are we who God's calling us to be? Has grace radically reoriented our lives that we look not like our culture, but like Jesus when we're together in the way that we treat each other, in the way that we love each other? And I think there are some ways that we are, but there's also a lot more, a lot of ways that we're not, a lot more that we can grow into together. And I think we look a lot more like our neighbors than we want to admit. We're more influenced by by them, just like Paul or Peter was influenced by his community, It's just the water that we swim in. Now, why? Why is that true? Why don't we look that different together as a people? It's because of idols. We just swim in these same cultural waters, and we're looking to them for our justification. We're looking for those things, to those things, to to prove our identity, to know that we're okay, or to remove our shame, to get our names off the board. That's the true things that we're looking to are not things that are Jesus and putting Jesus at the center. And what Paul is saying here is that the path to us looking more like Jesus us as a community, as a family, it comes through us facing and removing our idols. That's the way. That's the way that it happens, that we become and we look more like Jesus. Facing the idols that are the same in our community as they are in here, the idols of comfort. I've said this many times before, but I think that's the huge drive for all of us is to be a great middle-class Canadian, to just live a comfortable, good life. You know, Americans, uh, one commentator I listened to, he's like, Americans want a great life. We just want a good life. We want life to be great. It's a different type of thing. And we can fool ourselves because we're like, oh, we're not Americans. We don't want to be great. But it doesn't mean that idol is any less violent and present in our midst, chasing after that great middle class life. The idols of security. The idols of family, like, it's so, so awesome to be able to do a child dedication here, but that's, the, that's what idols are, is they're good things that become ultimate things that we place in the center of our community, and then they don't allow us to become the people that God is calling us to be his bride, a reflection of Jesus Christ in the world. The idols of freedom, of money, of complacency, the fear of being shamed by our friends, and setting up bounded sets and putting ourselves in the inside and, and shaming people who are outside. See, these are all the same idols of the culture, and they're all the same idols that are in here. They're the things that are in here, in me. And they're the things that are in us. And until we face them, we'll never, the issue here is not to shame you, but until we face those things, we'll never become who God is calling us to be, which is an amazingly beautiful and big and high thing. He calls us his bride. He calls us the body of Christ, that Christ is now gone, and he leaves it to us to in some way reflect him in the world. That's what my friend Aaron, he was here preaching a couple weeks ago. That's what he prayed over, or sang over us. Christ now has no body but yours. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, the church is the final apologetic. That the world will know that Jesus is alive because of the way that we live. And that's why I think we're on the way there, and that's why I stay in this job, that there are so many beautiful things happening in this community, and there's amazing potential. But I I want us to hear the challenge of this passage to be open to looking at the deep idols in our life so that we might look more like Jesus as a community together. Are you in for that? Now, in order to become this, that group of people, we need to hear this last section. Actually, I'll just give you one really practical thing here. If you want to do that, what I would encourage you to do is just take a look, t- take one of those idols that I talked about and just talk to somebody else about it. Is this running my life? Take it home this week, take it home this afternoon, make for a light conversation over lunch. What's my deep idol in my life? Where is my fear and identity pointing to that's stopping us from being the family of God? And we all have different ones. That's why it's so tough. I can't come to you and say exactly what yours is. But would will will you take the time to just think and consider that? And here is the last thing I'm going to say. This is how Paul recalibrates Peter back to the gospel. And as people, we need to hear this last section. He says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Paul believes there's real power in the gospel, real life-changing power. He actually believes it because this is the place where the God of the universe shows his love, where he opens himself up and shows himself most to us in the person of Jesus. It's where he re- reorients the world, and it's where Paul says in the start of Galatians, he, he um, disempowers the powers and principalities that are over us. He embarrasses them, it says, on the cross. He takes our idols, and he takes the, the power away from him. It's in the cross that he does that. And if we want to access that power, if we actually want to be those kinds of people, then we need to listen to what Paul is saying here and recommit ourselves again and again and again to this pattern of life that he's calling us to, which is the pattern of dying and rising, of becoming new human beings, of dying to these idols in our lives and the things that they offer us so that we might rise as new people and not just individually but as a family, that we might be new people together that reflect our good and our gracious God into the world that so desperately needs it. And Paul says these beautiful words, I don't live anymore, but now it's the life of Christ in me, the pattern of dying and rising that makes the life of Jesus the central thing about who we are. And when we choose this pattern, we choose not to settle for just being a good, a good church, a nice church full of wonderful people who are friends and believe in Jesus and like each other sort of sometimes, right? And we choose a different path of becoming a picture of God in the world. That Christ lives through us. It's just a stunning, absolutely stunning offer that the God of the universe wants to live through you, to make his life known through you, to make the good news of the gospel the thing that breaks the whole entire world and sets it on a new foundation through us and through you. A stunning offer that Jesus has. And that's why I'm here. That's why I've stayed around over the past two crazy years. It's because I do believe that that, what, that is what God's doing here, And I don't want you to hear any shame that we're like, we're just so far away. That's not what I'm saying. But this passage is an invitation for us to go even deeper. To face up to those idols in our lives. To come around together and identify them. And then to learn how to die and rise. That the life of Christ might be made known in us. That's why I'm here. What about you? Let's close in prayer. God, it is a heavy passage in many ways but it is a beautiful offer. And so beyond maybe the sting of hearing these words, I pray that we would also see the offer that you, the God of the universe, you actually want to reflect this glory that you showed in Jesus through us as a community. And so I pray um, maybe through all the malaise of, of the words that I've shared, that you would make yourself clear in this time and that you would call us to respond. So Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you to draw us more into you and into the, the life of, of the Trinity. And so I pray that you would um, do your work now as we respond, as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we take communion together. Would you make yourself known, and would you just make yourself central and beautiful in this space? It's so awesome to be part of a nice group of people, wonderful group of people that I really love and am friends with, but I also want something so much more for us, because I, I know you do too, that we might be actually a reflection of the gospel and of Jesus' life. So would you make that more and more true today as we sing, as we respond, and as we leave this place as well? So we give this time over to your Holy Spirit and ask that you would do your work in our community. In the name of Christ, amen.